Welcome to Off the Record with James Bell, a legal podcast where we listen to stories that go beyond the courtroom. This podcast is a production of the Indianapolis Bar Association. Now here's your host, James Bell. Greetings, race fans, and welcome to this episode of Indie Bar's podcast, Off the Record. Our guest this go-around is Doug Bowles, who you likely know as the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but you might not know that he's an attorney as well. Doug Bowles is very supportive of the Indie Bar. He hosted and spoke to our Bar Leader Series group last week, and a member of his team, Jimmy McMillan, will be our president in 2021. Doug, welcome to Off the Record. Well, thanks for having me. This is great. Well, I, we really appreciate it. We know you're not busy this month. No, nothing going on. It's and just a slow month. So we always like to get, you know get people when they're not busy. So I appreciate you fitting us in. You have dedicated, if not most of your personal life, some of your personal life, you dedicate a lot of your professional life to racing mm-hmm. and specifically Indy, Indy Car, the Indy 500. You fell in love with the race, Indy 500, first time you saw the race with your father in 1977, yep, correct? Correct. Describe that day for me. You know, I, I, as far as back as I can remember, I was an Indy 500 fan. And the rule in our house was you had to be 10 years old to go to the Indy 500. So for me, uh, I was born 66, so I couldn't convince my folks that 76 was really my birth year and that they should let me go then, but I was, but I was only nine. So 77 was the first Indy 500, and I remember... I remember going to bed the night before, more excited than I'd ever been in my life, any Christmas, anything, getting up really early with, with Dad. Mom had packed a cooler for us, taking our Impala, Red Impala station wagon, pulling out and just driving. We parked in the neighborhood in, here in Speedway and just walking in with Dad. We walked through the old Gate 1 right out here at 16th and Georgetown and just the, the feeling of, oh, my gosh, I'm actually getting to go to the Indy 500 and sitting in our seats. And I was a huge A.J. Foyt fan. So as it turns out, that day AJ wins his fourth Indianapolis 500, and and looking back on it now, I'm glad that I that was my first one because AJ was just such a huge. I mean, I, he was my hero, and still in a lot of ways still is, and and, and for that to happen. But I, every day I come to work, it's funny. I think of not necessarily where we parked and walking in. But I think of my dad every day when I come here, and and it's just it's a cool gift the passion for this place that my dad gave me. And I, and I think coming in, you know, how blessed I am to have, you know, have my dad pass that passion down to me. And, and it's not, uh, it does not a lot of days go by that I don't think about, man, I wish I could go back and tell that 10 year old what was going to happen, you know, 40 years later. Right. Well, I think some interviewers might go down, some racing interviews would go down the AJ Foyt alley right, right. now. I'm going to go down the lawyer alley. Sure. Your dad, who is your dad? So, well, my dad is my real hero. Right. And, and so I grew up, uh, he was, a uh, a teacher, uh, loved teaching, but he went to law school in the seventies in downtown Indy and uh, got a job as a as a as a little town as county seat lawyer in Hendricks County. And we moved from Indy to Hendricks County, and then my dad decided he needed to run for a circuit court judge out there. And and uh, in 1978, and and uh, was elected, and then was on the bench really until just a few years ago when he retired. And so some of my great memories of my dad are. Being a young kid walking around knocking on doors, they dropped me off in a neighborhood back when it was okay to drop a kid off and you knew you could pick him up later in the day with a bunch of pamphlets. I knock on a door and say, hey, my name's Doug Bowles. My dad's running for circuit court judge. I'd love for you to vote for him. And it sort of got me really passionate about politics too, and especially local politics, talent, you know, where you really make a difference. And uh, so growing up uh, with a judge as your father was a, was a lot of fun until I became a high schooler. And I remember like my first week of school in high school, and I'm a tiny five, six skinny kid. I'm in the restroom and some big senior says to me, Hey, uh, 
you the judge's kid? And I'm just thinking, oh, man, just get me out of the restroom here before something bad goes down. So it was, my, it was really my first moment of knowing that, okay, my dad was also the juvenile court judge in Hendricks County, right? So all of the, all the guys that got in trouble in school saw me the next day in the, in the, in the hallway. So in, until I got a little more meat on my bone, it was, you know, I was hiding most of the time. Now, so just he is legendary personality, high-profile judge, Jeff Bowles. Yes. Right? And my brother actually took a class from him in Butler. Yes. And I think it was business law, but the yep. real title was The World According to Jeff <laughs> is what I've been told. He, he's, he is a huge, just a character, right? And, and, it was, and those classes, I think people loved his classes just because you never know what you were going to get and how they, and he had somebody time in the class. And if, you know, the, the, the kids could actually say, hey, we're done, go home kind of thing. And um, he would have been there all night. Well, and I, and I think he was trying to make sure he was staying on topic and teaching, and he was just really – what he was really trying to do, I think, and he was really good at is just engaging his audience, making sure that kids were paying attention. I run into people still as I'll walk around the racetrack here and talk to people who had my dad when he taught at Pittsboro, which is now Tri-West, um, west of town. And they what te- subject did he teach? I think he taught – I think he taught – he must have taught geometry because I the stories I hear mostly are of him standing on the table on the desk – and drawing on on the corners of the walls and not the chalkboard to explain angles and different things and just writing all over the walls. And while I think it's pretty cool that it does explain some of the, the you know your basics of geometry for him, I think all of that showmanship was I'm going to help you learn. I'm going to make it fun. And I want you to pay attention instead of what, you know what happens when you're in the back of the class and you're bored. You just you, you don't connect with your your teacher or your professor. So he. You're growing up. It's a small town. It's Danville, yeah, right? I think we were three thousand people or something when I grew up. And when your dad rules against somebody, mm-hmm. they're ruling against somebody you know or yep. you're maybe connected to. Yep. So that's kind of the bad part of being uh, the son of a judge, right? What's the good part? Well, I, I think I don't know. That, I don't know that I would specifically say there was something good about being the son of the judge. There was something good about being the son of Jeff Bowles because he loved his family so much, and that and we still have that relationship where we talk every day and. And, you know, he set a lot of examples uh, for us as kids. I have two sisters. You know one really well. Um, and I think just on, you know, how to treat family, you know, how to treat your spouse. Uh, my dad was very busy, but he also was made sure he was taking time for us. I can't think of, but maybe in four years of high school swimming, him missing only one or two of my events. I mean, he was just really involved with the family. So I think he set a great example. So that was probably the best part about about being that. And then as I got into school and even went into law school, the best part about it was it was an easy phone call to say, hey, help me. Uh, I, don't un- I don't understand Professor Car- uh, you know, Carlson. Or, but, you know, pick somebody that was just really, really difficult to kind of understand, and, and Dad could walk me through some of that. Okay. And so did people come up to you and say, hey, thank you? You were my juvenile judge. Did they ever walk up and thank him? It's funny. Um, most of the conversations with I have somebody, because they will say, hey, I'm was in front of your dad. Most of the conversations all end up on, man, he set me straight. I went, in, you know, I've not really had a conversation with anybody who said, hey, I can't stand that guy or X, Y, and Z. Most of them are these stories about how, you know, they got in trouble and they, and he straightened them out. I hear more from people because he would have lots of classrooms go through and see him in court. I have more people come up to me and say, hey, I went there as a eighth grader and and they'll tell the story of whoever it was that was in front of my dad and how that's sort of almost scared straight like so I hear that a lot more than I do somebody that actually was in front of him so your dad got you into politics by knocking on doors correct and he got you into racing yep by just uh, developing a passion so your first job in professional racing I think is working for Mayor Goldsmith is that right yeah so I worked for I worked for Mayor Goldsmith I was just a um, I worked for him actually in the prosecutor's office 
was a PR guy for him in the prosecutor's office, and I spent my evenings uh, at, at one of the local law firms in the library doing research on who he thought his likely opponent would be for mayor when he ran in 1991, and then I was his assistant campaign manager, and then ultimately his director of governmental and corporate affairs, and he got frustrated with the fact that I, Steve worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He got frustrated that several weekends a year I'd go take off and do some racing thing. I was actually driving myself and I was or, or going to a race. He said, we got to figure out a way to take your passion and make it work for me and the city of Indianapolis. And that's when he said, why don't we create a task force that's designed to go attract businesses to Indianapolis that are racing related? Nobody had really ever done that. And Steve really believed that we had this sort of natural asset of motorsport in the Indy 500 that we ought to turn that into jobs. And so that's how I got through a portion of my work was helping the mayor set up what he called his mayor's economic development task force around motorsports and attract motorsport business to the city and, of Indianapolis. And what, what resulted from that? Well, the first the first business we got to come here was was Walker Racing, which was an IndyCar team for a, for a long time. Actually, they still have a building on the north side of town. So that was they they relocated from Pennsylvania, brought their shop, they brought jobs, three IndyCar teams as part of that one organization. Uh, we had um, helmet manufacturer come to the west side. So all of a sudden, it just start you started just bringing these companies together. Uh, we went to the state house and lobbied for a use tax exemption for IndyCar teams that were based here around the cars that they purchased, sort of led by Chip Ganassi Racing. But the city, you know, carried that forward and lobbied for that. So a lot of neat things happened because of that, and we just made it easier for motorsport business to be located here. And, and then uh, Governor Daniels. Um, took that on and also ha- and had somebody that he in the state still has somebody that really part of their job is to focus on motorsports for the state of Indiana. If you look at Brownsburg, a lot of that comes has has roots in Steve's uh, initiative, uh, but the governor just expanded to be statewide, not just in Marion County. Okay, and so also during the '90s, you're an owner of a, a race team, correct? Yeah. So I I ended up leaving Steve after we passed the budget in '97 for the city to start an IndyCar team called Panther Racing, and I was there for 10 years. One of my partners was Jim Harbaugh, Indianapolis Colts quarterback, and a guy named Gary Pettigo, who was a car dealer here for a long time, and I was the chief operating officer of that, and we won 15 races, a couple championships. It was a great opportunity to, to go to the racetracks and get paid and, uh, and, and really uh, compete. Now, I'm looking at you right now. You're wearing a tailored suit, I think, right? <laughs> You, did Jim Harbaugh wear dickies, like, around when you had, like, meetings and stuff? I mean, did, did, did y'all have to, like, you know? So I, I have a great story. Um, we had a reunion of Panther Racing folks a few years ago when Jim was still at the San Francisco 49ers and the, uh, the NFL was coming in for the combine. The coaches were. And um, Gary Pettigo, car dealer, was picking Jim up at the airport and was going to bring him downtown. So all of the sort of the group of us that founded Panther and our first driver, Scott Goodyear, were all in the upstairs room at, at St. Elmo's waiting. And they're late. We don't know why. And Gary finally calls and says, "Hey, we're going to be there shortly." When Jim arrived, he didn't he didn't bring any clothes, and we went to the the Walmart in Mooresville, and he bought he bought all his dickies, and his his generic black polos and chew were the three things they bought at the Walmart because that literally is what he did. He wore dickies and just a black polo because for him. It just made life easier. You didn't have to worry about what you were picking out each day. You wore the same thing. Did he wear a string with a pen on the, on the, around his <laughs> he, neck? He did not. He did not wear that in in the Panther days. But okay. uh, so he's a good teammate, though I assume he, to work he, with. He's he, kind of a little off, right? He's, he yeah, and, and I. I uh, you know, there's a lot of stories that I probably shouldn't tell. Um, one that borderlines. We'd like to hear those. There's one that borderlines on I shouldn't tell, and I will about Jim. Uh, our first year racing was in 1998. 
Jim had just been traded to Baltimore so we could draft some guy named Peyton Manning. I've heard of him. Um, and uh, so he was a, he, he ends up being the, the quarterback uh, for Baltimore, and we're racing in Do- Dover, Delaware. So Jim came down. It was during training camp. And for whatever reason, one of our, our crew chief actually got in a little bit of an altercation with, um, with another team. And Jim happened to be walking by and see three or four, we were sponsored by Pennzoil, three or four guys in yellow uh, in a fight with um, three or four guys in red, white, and blue. They were sponsored by Crest. So um, Jim asked no questions. Jim just dove right in and started defending his guys, right? I mean, for him, it was like, this is my team, and I wear the same colors as they are. I'll worry about why we're doing this, but right now my job is to be a teammate and make sure that we win this or we get, you know, we get everybody out in one piece. And, and that, to me, was really what Jim represented. Jim was... He's such a great leader and, and such a great teammate that if, if he's your college football coach, man, I tell you, I can't imagine anybody you'd rather play for because you know as fiery as is and as sort of off as he looks at some point in time, you also know that he's got your back. And, and that, that to me was the best part about having him around. He just was so into this is a team and we're doing this together, win or lose, but you can count on me to be right alongside you. I may be wrong, but I seem to remember as you tell that story that Jim Kelly, as a retired person, as an announcer, yep. questioned his toughness. He, they, it, and so, I think that ended in a black eye for Jim Kelly, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that, well, I can still remember the day that uh, Jim uh, – This it was right after we made the announcement. So this is that we were starting a team, so it's like 97, and we're doing a, an autograph session at, at Pedigo Chevrolet. And I think Jim comes in with a bandaged hand, right, because – a wrist – and then he and I can still see the day that he's in the back of the shop telling the guys what happened. You know, I showed up at the hotel room. I brought a buddy of mine and closed, made sure the door was there. And then we were going to duke it out as 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 two men. Uh, and and but that was him. I mean, he just wears that emotion on his sleeve. And that's the that was why I think. And he he's for for his whole NFL career. Uh, was always part of Panther and would come in and he would say, you know, I was a Chicago Bear most of my career, but the place where the people love me the most and the place where I feel the most at home and the, where I, the most I belong was Indianapolis. Captain he, Comeback. He loved this community and he loved being here and he loved the people. And I think the people saw that emotion that he had and, and that, that was a point in time where we, we needed that, right? Yeah. Almost took us to the Super Bowl, and and so I think this community holds a special spot for him. I and I would agree with that. And he missed a couple of games that season yep. because I think he punched Jim Kelly, yep. which mean, meant we lost a few more, <laughs> which meant we got Peyton Manning. So anyway, uh, so you're cruising along in the '90s. You're politically connected. You're hanging out with quarterbacks, and then you do something very silly, and you go to law school. Is that right? So I actually started law school a, 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 um, a little before we started the race team, and then I took a year off to um, s- secretly work on the race team and then help the mayor run for governor. And okay. we all know that that didn't turn out the way exactly we wanted it to. And then I did go back to law school and finish up law school at the a- after I'd started the race team. You went to McKinney? I or, did, Okay, yes. and you went at, at night? I did go at night. Why did you want to go to law school? Why was that important to you? I think I wanted to go to law school more than anything because of my dad, right? I think I felt like it, I needed to do that for my dad. And I also felt like my job as director of governmental corporate affairs meant lobbying uh, alongside Joe Loftus, who's a name that a lot of people in sure. Indianapolis know really well. Um, you know, my dad, um, really good friend Joe Russell, who was uh, his first bailiff, but also was, a president, of, was a president of the Indy Bar at one yeah. point in time. Um, just seeing the people I was around, and I felt like, you know, this can't hurt me to have the degree. So I, I felt like I needed to complete it for that, for that reason. As a person who had life experience before law school, 
you went to law school. Did it change the way you think or anything like that? Or did it – what did you get out of law school? I do th- I think law school – and I tell people this, kids this when they're thinking about law school. I, I, I think law school helps the way you think, right? You actually – you look at problems differently. You communicate differently. It helps you – uh, to put your arguments in a logical order, those those are the kind of things that I think it was it was really helpful. I think having a job while you go through it also helps you put a lot of the other craziness that can go on in law school in perspective. Uh, so I probably, uh, you know, I wasn't maybe as serious about it. I don't mean serious in a negative way, but but my, I didn't feel like my my career going forward depended on how I did in law school. So you went through it unlike I did. Absolutely. If you would have gone through it that way, I mean, I, there were a lot of people that I knew that went through it, and that was, you know, 100% their focus. And for me, it was a lot of different uh, things. In fact, I have a good Professor Jagan story um, was tax class. It's election night for um, for uh, the governor's race. And I spent the day with Steve um, and helicopters and cars just going around, just doing the last minute stuff that you would do. And I knew that was going to happen. So I Left a message for uh, Professor Jagan at his office. I say, hey, this is Doug Bowles. Just wanted to give you a heads up that I'm helping the. Um, I'm going to be with with Steve all all day. I'm going to come to class because class was like six to seven thirty or whenever it was. But then I'm going to I'm going to leave at halftime because I'm going to go for the when elections come in. But I don't or when the results come in. But I don't want to miss the whole thing, so I'm going to be there. But just wanted to give you a heads up. Um, thank you very much. Typical his style, um, he calls on me in the first hour of class, which I think I could figure. So if had I not said anything, he wouldn't call. And you know, if you had, if you had him, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you start. And you know, his process was he, at least when I was in school, uh, one person sort of took the sec- first half, and then the second half was somebody else. So we go through the first half, and I'm like, get through it. And he says, okay, right after break, we'll pick right up again with Mr. Bowles. Yeah. And so, I mean, and and I'm certain it's because I'd left him a voicemail yes. message, and he was just sort of jacking with me. So I came back in, and and uh, ultimately, it was, ultimately, we ended up losing that night, so I probably was better off making sure I got that second half of class in. It's how you knew that he loved you, right? <laughs> that, that he he wanted you to learn, friend, yeah. yes. friend. Yeah. Uh, so how'd you do? When, I mean, did you feel like you had gotten sliced to pieces, or did you do all right with him? Oh, I think I did okay, but you know, always felt sort of like you got sliced yeah. to pieces. Right? I remember right? there was never a time that you felt a hundred percent good about it. Yeah, I remember the day I got called in at Jay, and when it was over, it, he, I think he was pretty easy on me. Yep. But I remember that feeling like that's it. I yep. did it. Yep. I did it. It was so, yep. So you get out of law school. And you begin. You, you represent drivers, correct? I did. Okay, yeah. and you. I assume you got to see a different side of them for sure. What did you learn well, as a lawyer for drivers? It's interesting having been on the team side, right? And then and the, and arguing or trying to negotiate a deal with a driver when you're representing the team interests. And then so on the driver side, I felt always like working with drivers. I had an idea what teams were looking for. Um, you know, drivers are. It can be pretty selfish. It's like any other athlete, right? It's sort of all about them. So managing through that, even when you're walking alongside representing them, that it was it was a little bit of a challenge. Um, I actually did a, a jury trial representing a driver uh, alongside my sister. I brought her in as as co counsel. Mary and I have a have a younger sister, Sally, who, practices, Sally, who practices in Hendricks County, and um, and that that was a really cool moment for me just to prep with her and even prep with dad right with yeah. the, the two of us together and walking through a case together and ha- how we were going to walk through it and uh, and that was that that is that's been a highlight for me having been able to do that but it also reinforced for me i think that um you know i'm sort of in the right place where i am right now i love the uh i love the trial side of things the prep side of things was, was a little tedious for me yeah it is tedious yeah. now 
I never mention a trial to anybody unless I want it. So did you win that trial? Well, it depends on how you think, how you define win. Um, this this uh, client was being sued for one hundred twenty five thousand dollars, and the jury gave a judgment of sixty. So um, I think if I'd been representing a corporation, they'd have probably been happy. But I was representing a, a, a guy that had no money anyway, so yeah. it, for him it, it didn't matter. But I f- felt generally pretty good about it that we that we uh, whose we, court was it in. Uh, Judge Oaks. Judge Oaks. Okay. Judge Oaks, and uh, that couldn't I, have been too long ago. Then it, it was. I want to say it was in two thousand nine. Okay, maybe, right before I came here, um, and uh, yeah, I had a really interesting encounter with Judge uh, before because I'd known him for a long time, and he asked all all of us to approach the bench. So. Um, and had some kind words to my sister about not wanting to make sure that I didn't screw up. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. Hey, now, so having prepped a jury, gone through the tediousness, the stress of that, Yep. I bet you're really glad to be at the Motor Speedway now. Yeah, absolutely. This, so is, this, is, this is your calling. This, this, this is, a, well, for the time being anyway, right? right. It's definitely that, and, and it comes with its own level of stress and a lack of sleep, but I'm really passionate about this, so it's pretty easy to get up every day and, and do what we do. Tell me if I've got your job right. Yep. You're part promoter. Yep. You're part manager. Yep. You're part operations guy. Yep. Part idea guy, entrepreneur. Yep. Part businessman. Mm-hmm. What part of you is is a lawyer when you're president of the Motor Speedway? Well, I, that, that, the lawyer comes into play quite a bit, right? There, there are times uh, just before um, before I walked in here, looking through some contracts with uh, one of our TV partners, just making sure that um, we're in we're in good shape there. I think what happens the most, though, there are points in time where my promoter hat, which I'm probably mostly promoter, uh, and my lawyer hat um, completely disagree with the right outcome in right direction your promoter side overrides the lawyer side usually the regulator side usually it does which sometimes drives the legal team here a little bit crazy i think they were excited when i was um named president because i'm sure they thought okay great we got a we got a lawyer gonna help run the place and um but the side of me i I just i've felt like my job really since i've been in this job for six years mainly is to reconnect the indianapolis motor speedway to the community to the state of indiana and to make sure that we're promoting it all the time not just in may but how are we promoting it how are we connecting all the time so people feel good about the fact that the indianapolis motor speedway is in their state whether they buy a ticket or not i want everybody to wake up on race morning say you know what i'm proud to be a hoosier and i'm proud the indy 500 happens in our state and in order to do that that's do some crazy things and and sometimes those crazy things um if you ran them through the legal team first you'd never get done so you sort of figure out how to get it done and then go apologize i heard you and jimmy had an idea of allowing people to drive their car around the track as fast as they wanted to at one point yes that happened what what happened on that so yeah so jimmy and i so jimmy's a motorcycle rider and uh, I, i said you know i've always wanted to figure out a way to connect people to the speedway and the easiest way to do that would if we could let if we could create a course inside our racetrack on the road course that we could get people out, let them bring their own car, and then run like speed limit whatever the car will go and have some fun. Let's connect people to the thrill of driving fast and maybe and getting the speedway. Maybe there's a way that we can then expand that so that they come to our events. And Jimmy brought his motorcycle out and car out and we're running through all kinds of different ideas. I think we both had convinced ourselves that this is a great idea and we can do this. And then when we ran it up the flagpole. 
the, the reasonable the, the the reasoned legal legal team was really concerned about it, and then we had insurance issues, so it sort of has died on the vine at the moment. I'm still not going to completely give up. Okay. On that effort, have uh, you driven your car as fast as it could go on the track? So one of the the best perk of this job, um, especially in April and May, and and some and oftentimes through the summer, is we have a partner, partnership with Chevrolet, so I often get to use some really fun cars. So Tahoe in the winter, get through all the snow. And then uh, springtime, summertime as a Corvette or a Camaro, and and I'll often um, I didn't do it yet today, but I'll often end up on the racetrack in the car and and uh, no helmet, just normal, just coffee in seat, hand. Yeah, no coffee. Well, it depends on what I'm doing, but uh, seatbelt for sure, and uh, uh, just run some laps out there. And the beauty of technology anymore, you can just hands free. You can do conference calls running 120 miles an hour around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So. Uh, now, I think the fastest I've been out here is about 100, a little under 107. How fast does Tack get his motorcycle? Well, I, I'm not sure, um, but I believe he's been north of 160 on his bike oh, out here. Which does I, he I know those are dangerous? I don't think he. I don't think uh, his legal counterparts and legal know that. I think that's our secret. That's so, our secret. Yeah, we won't okay. tell them. Yeah. Uh, so you're a client of your legal team. Uh, correct. How would you rank yourself one to ten? Ten being the most difficult. I think it depends on the day for sure. I, I, I do, th- I, I do think we're uh, that uh, that I'm probably pretty easy for the most part because I understand what their job is and I appreciate what they do. I mean, their job is to make sure that we are doing things properly, uh, staying out of trouble, and if something does go wrong, we are properly uh, we are properly set up to defend ourselves if we need to, and we've done we've taken all the proper precautions and and we have a legal team here that frankly that they're they I think their first job and they know it is to help us say yes, not mm-hmm. say no. Uh, so it, it is a great team, and, and Jimmy, uh, having Jimmy on helps that for sure. The night before a jury trial, I'll stress out about whether this witness will really show up or will this, go my, will this ruling go my way. The night before the Indy 500, you got weather, you got hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of people, you got cars going insane speeds. What do you worry about, or are you just so excited to get here? It's a combination of everything. So my, my race day will start Saturday morning at, um, you know, 5.30 or whenever I decide to roll in here. And then I'll literally stay up all night Saturday. So my, my race day literally starts on Saturday. And then Saturday night leading into Sunday here is just chaos, right, because you're just trying to get everything set up. Last year we had a little storm blow through, and it blew over all kinds of concession stands. We had a problem with the snake pit video. So you're up all night just trying to solve stuff before your gates open at 6. You're an AV guy as well? You end up being everything, right? Okay. So, or, or at least you're you're the guy who's picking up the phone trying to find the right AV guy to come in and, and solve, solve the issue. So for me there's a lot of – I would rather roll my sleeves up and be out out with the team really trying to manage through and help fix problems. So that's really where, where it begins. But I, I guess the thing I worry about the most, I worry about customer safety, so getting people in and out safely. And weather probably is the one thing because you can't control it. And even though the weather forecast may say one thing, it usually isn't what that is. And oftentimes in Indiana that time of year, you can get those pop-up storms and those you know those issues that, that could cause you a problem in terms of you know how are we making sure we're communicating to customers what weather might be coming what to do if the weather gets there i mean that's probably the biggest the biggest fear i have how many suits do you go through in that 48 hour period with your race two days you're oh I'll, I'll go through two or three two or three yeah how important is it for you to wear a suit 
um, when they made me president of the Speedway, I, I said, if anytime I'm officially representing the brand, I'll wear a tie because the brand in my mind deserves the tie. And if you look back at our history from Carl Fisher all the way through uh, t- uh, Eddie Rickenbacker, Tony Holman, uh, you know, all, all of those folks, Wilbur Shaw, they wore a tie. And for me, it's, I'd rather be in a t-shirt and short and jeans. I mean, that's what, that's what, that's really who I am. But for me, the brand deserves it, and and so I have from that day, July 9th of twenty thirteen. It's that's been my thing. What would your dad say about the lawyer brand and whether you should wear a suit or not? I, well, I, it's funny um, for the IndyCar Grand Prix a few days ago. Um, so Dad obviously retired, and he had tons and tons of ties. So I got gifted a bunch of ties. Okay. And so the, for the IndyCar Grand Prix, I actually I actually wore one of his ties and. Uh, Dad had a chance to swing by my office trackside, and and first thing he said when he walked in, he said, "Nice tie." I said, "Yes, because it's yours." Um, you know, I I, th- I think my dad feels the same way about this brand too, right? Yeah. It it, it, deser- it deserves a tie, and certainly, uh, I don't think I would have wanted to be an attorney and show up in my dad's courtroom without a tie. I think that may have been a quick exit, and <laughs> it may have been a quick exit out of the courtroom until he came back. So there are, we know about the Grand Prix. We know about the Indy 500, the Brickyard. What other events are out at this track that I should go to? you got the lights, right? Yeah, the lights at the Brickyard has been something that's been a whole lot of fun that we started in 2016, which is an opportunity for folks to come out, drive around the speedway in their car at a slow speed, not at, not at Jimmy and Doug. Let's go as fast as you can speed and, you know, three million lights. And it's, it's, a, it's a really neat way to connect uh, to the community. For us, the first year, over 50% of the people that came through, we had about 150,000 come through, wow. had never been to the speedway before. So for us, that's a great way to introduce somebody to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We've got the air race that goes on here in the fall as well. We've got an LPGA golf tournament because we have the Pete Dye golf course here. So those are just the different things. There's all kinds of stuff. How was the Rolling Stones concert? So the Rolling Stones concert was one of the more fun events uh, that I think we've ever done. It was also maybe one of the more legally challenging events because it was brand new and trying to figure out how you're uh, sharing some of the responsibility. Of the you know they brought their own stage in. You know who's 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 responsible for indemnifying who in, in those issues it was a night concert that took place in a place that's not lit so how are we thinking about the lighting and all the you know just all of the different issues that it that it presented but it was you know fifty five thousand people standing on july 4th in the speedway singing to the rolling stones it was awesome and did you meet the band so yes but did but, you make cave but accidentally okay so um i was at um I was asked to go to a, a dinner at Iozo's, which I'd never been to Iozo's before, and I, which is weird in my whole life. And um, the bands, the, the group we had partnered with to help promote was getting their group together to to have dinner. And I didn't want to go, and I, f- I finally decided I need to just go. And I and so I told my wife, I said, "Let's go." We'd done. We had a whole bunch of other appearances we had to do. I said, "Let's just get down there in time to have a drink, and then we'll get out." By the time we got there, it was time for dinner. We got stuck at dinner, so we're sitting there on the patio in the patio out back in the back door the back gate opens up and some big guy comes in the next thing you know Mick Jagger's coming in and they're all walking in and so my wife's all excited and so she says to the the promoter guys oh man do you know him they're like well no we know the management we don't know them so nobody knows them and it's and they um they're starting to take pictures security comes over tells people you can't take pictures show me your camera take and blah 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 so I decide I'm going to take my card. I take my card over and give it to the security guy. I say, hi, my name's Doug Bowles. I'm president of the Speedway. Uh, just want to make sure you guys are having a good time. If there's anything you need, let me know. He just looks at me, doesn't say anything, puts my card in his pocket. And I said, great, fine. I walk off the neck like, like I'm going to the restroom. I 
come back and sit down. And about 20 minutes later, um, the, the guy comes up to me and says, when he's done with dinner, Mr. Jagger will see you. Oh, he will. And, uh, and then he came over finally and he said, Mr. Jagger will see you now. So I, my, my wife and I went up and talked to him. And, and it, was, it was interesting. He said, I have two questions for you. Is it true that you'll have over 50,000 people there tomorrow? I said, absolutely true. And he said, and is it true that we're the first ever standalone concert at the Indianapolis Motor Bureau? I said, yes, sir, it is. He said, those are the two reasons we're here. So that was, I mean, it was really, really cool. But, but he my, said it in an accent. Yeah, he said it in an accent, which I can't do in an okay. accent. And then, and then he looked at my wife. And, then and, it, and he's interested in business, right? He was interested in it's business. All business. Yeah, it was not. It was, and he, he looked at my wife and said, will I see you tomorrow? And, and Beth, she said, um, you probably won't see me, but I'm sure that I'll see you because, you know, at that point in time, we weren't, you know, they, it was, we weren't backstage. We weren't, you know, our job, we were on the outside just handling issues. So, but yeah. it was, it was, it was really cool. It was, and to hear him say that that were, th- those were the two reasons he came was pretty neat. Well, he's a London School of Economics guy. Like he's all business, yeah. I think. And that's interesting that those are the those. two. Well, I will see him now. Yeah. <laughs> so I can talk business. All right. All right, so just rapid-fire questions yep. to wrap us up. Best food to put in a cooler on race day? Wow, that's um, – boy, I don't know. I, I, that's terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm what do you? What did you put in your cooler on? So 19, mom, mom, mom always made uh, turkey sandwiches and corn, uh, peppered corned beef sandwiches for dad, so that's what we had. That was sort of our, our okay. staple. Um, you Best know, the, drink? Well, there's a lady named Chris Cross on the west side of town here that does jello shots, and she makes like 500 of them. So I always try and go find her in the grandstands as a fan. Um, you know, for me, anything that you got to have some water. No matter what else you drink, I know people are going to drink, but you got to pace yourself. So water is the best thing to have in the cooler to go along with whatever else the favorite might be. Best brand of jorts to wear to the track? Anything cut off from, you know, the 80s is all good. Just get so them out. So stone washed? I mean, do you have a preference on stone that? Stone washed is always good, too. That'd always be good. nice. Yeah. Best T-shirt or tattoo you have seen there at are, the track? There are dozens of people who have the most unbelievable Indianapolis Motor Speedway Indy 500 tattoos. There's one guy that's his entire back is a tattoo that I see every year, and he's, he's added something new every time uh, over the last couple of years. Do you add the heads of the people who've won off of the Well, they, the ha- they have the um, the cars, and it's, it's everything. And there's, there's a guy that in the last couple of years has been doing his entire arm, so each time I see him is something different. There are people with their legs. So there are – it's amazing how many people put something Indianapolis Motor Speedway on their body. I've heard that you're one of the great presidents of the Speedway because you started off as a fan. So since 1977, what's the greatest IMS moment as a fan that you've seen? Well, AJ winning it would be one of mine, just my first race and being such an AJ fan. And I think for people that grew up in that era, that still is. And that was his record win, right? That was the first time to win four wins. First driver, you know, so, so we've had two other drivers win four times since, but but that was the first time. So that was that was a really uh, a really big deal. I think the other, the other things that sort of stand out to me, Tony Kanaan finally winning the Indy yes. 500 because he's so popular and, and our fans knew how much this race meant to him. So to see Tony Kanaan win. Uh, is probably another one of those moments. Uh, the Dan Weldon moment, looking back on it now, yeah. uh, winning two 500s and just the way that the way that race ended, um, but then just knowing how much Dan loved the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and what what winning it twice meant to him, and then obviously losing him that that is that's one of the uh, one of the more powerful moments I think. So I'm going to call the AJ moment, 1977. You're, you're the best IMS moment that's for perfect. you. Is that the best sports moment for you? I mean, it's affected your life, right? Yeah, the, I can't think of a better. He crashes that day. Maybe we're not here. That, that well, that 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 very well could be. Uh, you know, maybe uh, 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of anything else in my life. You know, I'm going to change sports on you because yep. I know you're a Butler guy too. Yep. Okay, so it is very rare that a missed shot is shown in sports mm. promos, mm-hmm. but it's often shown Gordon Hayward mm-hmm. shooting from half court and the ball just barely missing. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's one of the great moments in sports because for like as long as that ball's in the air, we believe. You got a chance. That we got a chance. Mm-hmm. David's going to slay Goliath. Yep. All right. If that ball goes in, is that the greatest moment in sports history? If that ball goes in, I don't know how you, how that couldn't have been the greatest moments in sports history. Okay. And, and you know, short on the heels, just the team getting back to the final game the year after without Gordon Hayward, right? Sure. It's, it's another one of those moments. But uh, yeah, if that ball had gone in, we'd have been seeing movies, and I mean, that would have been an unbelievable, Hoosiers part un- two. unbelievable moment. So it didn't go in. So the best moment in sports is AJ. Fair enough. In 1977. Yep. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to uh, join us in May. We know you're busy. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, th- thanks for having me, and thanks to uh, you know everybody at the bar and everybody that's out practicing law and just uh, doing the things that make make us as attorneys proud because it's, uh, the work that we all do is uh, does make a difference. And and what I've been impressed with with the bar is how is how the, the members of the bar don't just worry about billing hours, but they worry about giving back and how are they making the community better. And we had the opportunity the other day to uh, to speak to some of those leaders in the bar that I know are going to go out and do great things, and that's really what we're all called to do is how do we use the platforms we have to give back, not just to not just to take. And I know the bar, the bar has that uh, as part of their DNA, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. So there you are now. Thank you to Doug Bowles for making time for us in the month of May. And thank you to the following people who made this interview possible, including Mick Jagger, A.J. Foyt, Jim Harbaugh, Professor Jagan, Acid Wash, Jorts, and all the lawyers who regulate Tic Tac McMillan and Doug Bowles and keep them safe. Please join us next time when our guest will be someone. We're not sure whom yet, uh, but it'll be good, okay? And I think it's time now. For us to go off the record.